Welcome back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. With, with me, as always, my co-hostess, Victoria Monday. And down in the chat room, Alina, moderating the chat. We have a great show coming up for you tonight. Our good friend, psychic lawyer, psychic explorer, Mark Anthony, is back with us. Uh, he's you know a renowned psychic medium, has a couple of books out there. And he is a very interesting guy, world traveler. He doesn't just come onto our show to talk about mediumship and, and all that, which he has before, but like I said, he's a world traveler. He's very interested in all these things going on within our universe. And tonight we are talking about the gates of hell. So Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. I mean, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't read inner demon coming out. huh? <laughs> Thank you, Mike, Victoria. I, I really appreciate uh, having him back on the show. We always have a good time. And um, yeah, this is a, a fascinating topic, uh, the gates of hell. It is. Yeah, so it, it really is. You know, I kind of dug into this uh, a little bit here over the, the past week since I knew that you were coming on. And, you know, I'm sure I'd, I'd heard something a few years back about, you know, an archaeological discovery and, and all of that. But, you know, you've done your homework on this. I'm going to throw up a couple of uh, uh, photos here. But this is in Turkey, but it's a Greco-Roman site. It is. Uh, and... Yeah, so it's an interesting location here. It, it really is. And, you know, so when we think of hell, uh, our concept of hell comes, it, it originated with the oldest religion in the world, which is Zoroastrianism, which comes from modern-day Iran. And there were descriptions of, of eternal damnation and going into a lake of fire. The Egyptians also had something like that. So pretty much um, most of the belief systems have a destination for the wicked after physical death. And we certainly know that in Christianity, you know, good people go to heaven, you know, bad people go to hell. And the Greeks and Romans were no exception. And you're, you're correct when you're saying this comes from eastern Turkey. In the ancient Mediterranean world, um, the country that is now Greece certainly was Greek speaking. But then again, most of what is now eastern Turkey was essentially part of Greece. And there was a city that they referred to as Heropolis, which in Greek means the holy city. And uh, the slides that you were showing of uh, the archway um, going into the ground, that was known as the plutonium. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, there's the plutonium, <laughs> the, the, the dreaded gate to hell. And which is named for the god of uh, uh, Pluto, the god of the underworld, correct? Correct, correct. In Greek, he was referred to as Hades, and in Latin, uh, which was the Roman religion, it was Pluto. And the Greeks and Romans, they, they shared a lot of cultural similarities, one of which was their religion. And plutonium, um, interestingly enough, is also one of the most, if not the most lethal substance known to our science. And it's no coincidence that plutonium uh, the name of the highly radioactive um, uh, element derives its name from the plutonium um, in, in uh, Heropolis. I want to talk a little bit about Heropolis first. It's um, right near the modern-day Turkish city of Pumakel, and Pumakel is, is a huge tourist destination. There's these incredible... Um, underwater uh, fissures that come up and there's hot springs. So, and, and to this day, people go swimming in the mineral baths and the ancient Greeks saw a medicinal quality to these mineral baths. But um, people would flock there from all over the Mediterranean world. And there were temples to Apollo, the god of the sun, to his sister Artemis, the goddess of the moon, to Zeus, the king of the gods. It kind of was, in a sense, like, like you might think of the Vatican today. It was a religious epicenter. And so all of the gods, they had their temples there. And Zeus in, in Greek, he was known as Jupiter in Latin, was the god of the sky. He was the king of the gods. His weapon was the lightning bolt. And his brother Poseidon in Greek, Neptune in Latin, was the, the god of the oceans and the seas. But the god of the earth and the underworld was Hades in Greek, Pluto in, in uh, Latin. And Pluto determined who lived and who died. 
And so people would come to Heropolis to make sacrifices to the gods. And the ancient Greek philosopher Strabo wrote about the plutonium. So there's this gate to the underworld. Now, you know, we, we've all heard about gates to hell, you know, like when you die and, and uh, there's, there's a Christian belief that you go and there's St. Peter and you get judged. And if you're good, you know, you're going up. And if not, you know, you're going down. And to some extent that that was borrowed from, from the Greco-Roman religion. And Strabo wrote about how the entrance to the plutonium was filled with this dense mist, so thick that you couldn't see, and any animal that passed inside of it met instant death. Now, the Roman senator and philosopher Cicero also visited, and he wrote that any animal that passes inside meets instant death. Bulls are led into it and then dragged out dead. He said, I threw in sparrows, little birds, and they immediately breathed their last and fell. So, Mike and Victoria, I mean, for centuries, people thought that this was, you know, just some type of fairy tale, some, some fictional, fictionalized myth. But um, there was an archaeologist, an Italian archaeologist, Francesco D'Adria. And the funny thing about Professor D'Adria, he went to Turkey for two weeks. Well, he stayed for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the way it goes. Kind of like when you go shopping at the store. Yeah. You know, he, he went there. He was interested in, in this. And, and when he got to, and, and uh, Heropolis was in what was once called the Kingdom of Phrygia. And uh, Phrygia was a very wealthy and prosperous Greek-speaking kingdom until the Persians came in and flattened it and, and made it part of the Persian Empire. But at any rate, he, he became so enamored with um, with Heropolis, and he started, he, he has quite a distinguished career. He found the tomb of, um, I believe it was St. Philip. St. Philip was uh, allegedly one of the disciples of Jesus, and he went to this area to spread the, the word, um, you know, the, the Gospels, and unfortunately he was uh, crucified by the local Greco-Roman religion. And uh, his, he's entombed there. And so uh, Professor D'Adria found that. And D'Adria was very well versed in Greco-Roman myths and, and legends. And there was this one area, uh, Mike, that they were working on. And they kept seeing dead birds around, around these ruins. So they started unearthing this area. And they noticed that any birds that would fly in would immediately drop dead. So Professor D'Adria, he suspected that he found the plutonium. The plutonium had been in, in Greek and Roman uh, stories, legends, and historical accounts for centuries. And then when the Christianity took over the empire, the Christians bricked it up, and then later on there was an earthquake that filled it in. So they started working um, on this and clearing it out, and then they found they found uh, something that just rocked their world. They found a statue almost five feet tall of the three-headed hellhound Cerberus right ah. in the mouth of the plutonium. And they were like, yeah, this <laughs> is it. Now, Cerberus is, is for those of us, and, and Mike, I believe you're one of these people, you study cryptozoology. You know, it's hard to do what we sure. do. You know, you know, people think, you know, I'm a medium, so I just talk about uh, spirit communication. But as you described, I've traveled all over the world. I've studied mystical and, and uh, supernatural phenomenon. And I know that you're a ghost story, and I love the term that you uh, <laughs> created. Well, it's, it's true. Thanks. It's, because it's a great term. I mean, <laughs> it, it really is. Well, I mean, if we're going to be studying supernatural phenomenon, it involves several different disciplines. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, mediums are so focused on, on just that, which, which is fine. But I've always been interested in, in pretty much everything. And archaeology is no different because if you're going to be studying archaeology, we'll certainly have to know history, but you also mm -hmm. have to know geology, you have to know chemistry. You have to know biology. You have to have. Uh, you have to understand physics. 
And so Cerberus was, and, and I think uh, most people would recognize Cerberus from Harry Potter and the, yeah, the first movie. Son, Fluffy. <laughs> yeah, Fluffy. <laughs> Fluffy, the big three-headed uh, hellhound that was guarding whatever it was it was guarding. Um, but hellhounds are, are all throughout uh, mythology, and there's certainly a lot of people who believe that they do exist. And hellhounds are supernatural dogs. They're the mean, nasty uh, dogs. In the movie The Omen, you know, when all those black dogs appeared, you know, the devil's dogs, well, those were hellhounds. Um, it is believed that the Egyptian goddess Anubis, the god of mum of um, of mummification, um, he, you know, he had um, he was a jackal-headed dog uh, god. He, he looked like a dog. He was a hellhound, and certainly Cerberus was the biggest, baddest uh, hellhound of them all. And so the Greeks said that anyone who tried to enter the plutonium would be struck down by the foul breath of Cerberus. So the Greeks, according to the religion, when you died is when you died, but you did not descend into the land of the underworld because there would be consequences to pay. And it was pretty darn scary. I mean, um, if they could bring bulls in there and the bulls would collapse and die, and this is all very heavily documented. The question is, why didn't the priests of the Greek religion collapse and die as well? I'll take a sip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I like I said before the show, I did a little poking around uh, about you know this particular location, and you know from my reading, that had to do with the fact that because of where the gases. Uh, you know, wafted up from the priests were a little bit taller, just tall enough that they wouldn't inhale it while the animals were a little bit lower to the ground, which is you know kind of interesting because you're talking about you know science here that maybe they didn't quite understand. There, maybe they understood to a, a certain degree back then. Uh, it, would, it would dissipate, you know, throughout the day. It Since would. It was denser. It would be there in the morning. So. Maybe they had that trick up their sleeve, you know. Oh, you two did do your homework. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, um, the foul breath of Cerberus turns out to be carbon dioxide, CO2, mm -hmm. because this whole area of the Mediterranean sits above geothermal and volcanic vents. And, uh, in fact, the Oracle of Delphi, the Oracle of Apollo, um, on the other side of the Aegean, um, also sits upon a geothermal vent. But th that's another story. So the thing about carbon dioxide, it's much denser than oxygen, so it falls to the ground. And so, like you pointed out, Mike, um, the priests were taller, and they also, uh, uh, Strabo noticed that they seemed to be holding their breath because they had these pained expressions <laughs> when they were coming out where they bring uh, the animals in who would collapse and die. And also, as Victoria pointed out, that they would do a lot of these rituals during the day because as the area heated up, um, it would cause the carbon dioxide to settle closer to the ground. So they may not have understood chemistry, but they certainly understood that there were noxious and poisonous gases that were coming out of the ground. And so they said that this was the breath of Cerberus who would smite anybody who tried to enter the kingdom of Pluto. And see, we breathe in carbon dioxide all the time. Carbon dioxide, this is a greenhouse gas. This is what you know everyone's worried about with climate change because it heats up the atmosphere. But normally, the air that we breathe is 0.039% carbon dioxide. All right, so that's just part of the air. It's harmless. Yeah. But if the, the levels rise to 10% carbon dioxide and you breathe that in, you're going to be dead within 30 minutes. The question is, what caused the instant death? So Professor D'Adria brought in geologists and they started studying the carbon dioxide levels. And once you're inside the plutonium, and it's a pretty tight space, you know, it's a cave and then it gets tighter and it does go very, very deep into the earth the carbon dioxide levels are 91%. If you breathe that in, you're dead instantly. So 
while the Greeks may not have understood uh, about gases and noxious fumes, they understood that they existed. So they used to scare the hell out of people from going to hell <laughs> by using Cerberus as, as, um, as the reason this happened. And the thing is, they used to uh, sell birds. So you could go there, you'd buy birds and throw them in oh. and watch them die. I mean, oh, you know, the Greeks, yeah, yeah, the Greeks and Romans weren't <laughs> real big on the value of life. I mean, certainly, you know, we've all seen Gladiator, but, you know, and that's probably a watered-down version of what they really were doing in in the arena and in uh, that. And certainly animal life uh, was given uh, no, no value whatsoever. So you would go there and to worship the god Pluto, you'd buy a bunch of sparrows, for a couple drachma, and then you go throw them in there and say your prayers to the god of death and and uh, watch that happen. <laughs> I call it so, a day. Yeah, I know. It's, it's pretty morbid. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I noticed when you showed that one photo, it looks like you're looking down and it's kind of like some, it almost looks like stadium seating, um, like when you go to the movie theaters. And I also read that they did sacrifice. Yeah, that one. Um, did they have like people come and watch sacrifices or, or who was doing oh, the sacrificing? Absolutely. Absolutely. This was big business. Okay. Religion has always been big business and mm -hmm. in an ancient world, it was no exception. So people would come and that's why with Strabo and Cicero, when they saw the priest bring the bulls in, this was because people were all lined up in an amphitheater to watch the bulls be smited. Okay, so this was the entertainment. Let's go watch something die. I mean, the Greeks and Romans were really big on watching something die. And uh, also in the same area, they had a huge amphitheater, which was built, they believe, um, by order of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, which could actually seat 15,000 people. Wow. Get, get this. They still put on shows there. The, the Romans in, uh, were so good with their understanding of acoustics that they could entertain 15,000 people without any form of, of amplification as we know it. Mm -hmm. So basically, it, um, Heropolis was, it was sort of um, like the Disney World for the gods, okay? And you took your family and you went on vacation and you did your pilgrimage there and you could pray to all the gods. You could see some shows, some Greek plays, some Roman um, comedies and, and Greek tragedies. You go and you would watch bulls and other animals be shoved into the plutonium and drop dead. And then, um, well, also a lot of their festivals would turn into drunken orgies. So I'm sure that, you know, there was a lot of appeal for a lot of people in, in that way. I know I never understood how Christianity caught on, you know, <laughs> and I don't to be disrespectful, but you know, it's like in ancient Rome, it's like, Oh, we're going to church. Woohoo. You know? Um, <laughs> so it was, um, they were sacrifices basically to keep people in line and for entertainment, not like, oh, you did something and I'm going to punish you and kill you, that kind of thing? From from the um, research that I've done, I haven't seen that they were actually putting human beings in there. Okay, now, so it's animals and stuff? Well, knowing the Greeks and the Romans, I I, <laughs> I can't say that it never happened, <laughs> but I, did, I didn't come across. Well, you know, it's like you have been judged and you are going to the plutonium. Okay. I mean, that would be like, oh, my God. On the other hand, I think I'd rather get shoved into the plutonium than thrown into an arena with hungry lions. Okay. Yes. Uh, that would be over faster. Real quick, as opposed to you know lions playing with you and, and ripping you apart. But mm. um, you know the, the world the world's always been a brutal place, and the Greeks and Romans knew it was brutal, but they made it fashionable and spiritual. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> fashionably yeah. spiritual, ripping apart of you know limbs. So. And have some wine. Here you go. Yeah. And have some wine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, Mark, well, let me ask yeah. you something here. Sure. So. Um, there's, there's writing, uh, it's Greek writing above the gate here. Now, uh, a lot of the, you know, legend and lore is that above the, uh, you know, the gates of hell is supposed to be written, um, abandon all hope ye who enter here. Is that what's supposed to be written here or is this something else? Um, um, that, that I believe came, came much later in, in history. Um, this, you know, the Greeks were looking at the underworld, um, this was part of life. Death was part of life. And you have to realize that during the Roman era, 
the average human lifespan was 28 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's not much. <laughs> no, it isn't. You know, you hear about, you know, like the Emperor Augustus lived well into his 70s and, and you know, people that, that were older, but they tended to be wealthy and certainly well-fed. But this was in a time where the common cold would kill you. Uh, they had no defense against diseases. Uh, you know, they didn't have anyone telling them to wear masks. They didn't understand what caused diseases. I mean, a lot of people thought diseases were called by caused by noxious vapors, ergo the plutonium, and that you're being struck down by the gods. So uh, life was very brutal, and and so paying respect to the god of death, Pluto, Hades, uh, would certainly have been something that that you did. You wanted to venerate this this all powerful God, because their version of the afterlife they had the um, illusion fields, and they were there. That it would be what we would call heaven, mm-hmm. and then there was Tartarus. Tartarus was the not so nice part of of uh, the underworld, and people who were considered evil were were tortured. Uh, the word tantalize comes from Tantalus, and Tantalus was cast into the deepest pit of of, uh, the underworld, and he was up to his chest in wine, and so when he would try to drink the wine, it would immediately disappear, and then right above his head, there was all these grapes and fruit, and he'd try to grab them, and they'd always be pulled right out of his, his grasp, and that's where the word tantalize comes from, because you know, from Tantalus, he was being tortured. Then there's the story of Sisyphus. I was just and, thinking that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sisyphus had to push this stone up this incline, and if he'd get it to the top, I guess, you know, maybe he'd get out of Hades, and it always fell and rolled back down. So for eternity, he was doing uh, this activity. And as Christianity began to overtake the area, a lot of this, be, you know, even though Christians would deny it, started getting incorporated into uh, the new religion. Um, in, sure, in my sure. upcoming book, which is coming out in October, um, I have a chapter where I describe uh, the origin of hell and where it comes from, even where it gets its name. Um, hell, as we know it, is a synthesis of many different beliefs, from the Zoroastrian beliefs, from the Greco-Roman beliefs, uh, there was a Jewish belief, even though Judaism doesn't have hell outside of, of Jerusalem, there's a valley known as Gehenna. And in Gehenna, if you were dishonored, in other words, a criminal, or if you couldn't afford a proper burial, your body was thrown into sulfur pits, which um, they called fire and brimstone. Oh. So... In ancient Judea, if you were evil, a sinner, a criminal, what awaited you was fire and brimstone. So when you start looking at the origins of all these, you can see how they got incorporated. Because, I mean, how many times have we heard, you know, zealous ministers, there's fire and brimstone and, and all this. And that comes from that tradition. And then meanwhile, on the northern border of the Roman Empire, the Vikings. And, you know, I, I love... You know, I love reading about the Vikings. I have to admit, I love that show on History Channel, the Vikings. But let me tell you, when the Vikings showed up, there was nothing to love about that. All right, they were a brutal warrior culture. I mean, they were the Klingons, basically. Okay, <laughs> tear the city apart, rape the women, kill the men, and you know, etc. Call it Saturday night, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah that was that Call was Saturday yeah. night. Yeah. yeah, and they had a um, the god Loki. And Loki was the god of fire and magic and mischief. And the the king of the gods, Odin, and his wife Freya, their son Baldur, was the god of light. And Loki tricked a blind god into smiting uh, Baldur with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. And Baldur dies. The god of light dies. Is that where Balderdash comes from? Um, could, but Freya, Freya goes <laughs> yeah. to the underworld and meets with the goddess of death, whose name was Hell. And on the third day, Balder rose from the dead. Hmm. hmm. Now, this predates Christianity by a good 
thousand years. One can only wonder, and I'm just putting it out there, that this may have had some effect and influence on other religions swirling around the Roman Empire <clears throat> in the first AD, uh, first century AD. But didn't the Egyptians have that same? I'm just going to call it a myth. Osiris. Yeah. Osiris. Yeah. God set and Mother Isis found him, and on the third day he rose. Mm -hmm. And this appears to be a reoccurring theme throughout religions in the Mediterranean and in European worlds. And Loki sort of got merged with Lucifer, and eventually Hell as a deity dissipated, leaving her name as the destination that you went to if you were bad. Now, for the Vikings, bad people, okay, if you murdered someone, if you outright murdered someone, or if you died cowardly. So if you died in battle, you got to go to their version of hell, which was like a drunken biker fest for all of eternity. You know, <laughs> warriors went. Um, and if you were, were evil, you went to this dark and dismal realm um, that we now call hell. And so the Greeks and Romans were, were in step with all of this. It's just that for them, this was an actual physical place that you can reach by going through this cavern into the underworld. And that's why in our culture, we refer to heaven as being in the sky because you're lifted up, but you know you go down below, and this is where it comes from. It's from the plutonium, it's from these ancient Greek beliefs that you could actually, hell is a physical place here, on, here underneath the earth. And Mark, we have a uh, question here from one of our uh, chatters, and it, it pertains to other cultures here. And uh, by the way, just to let our chatters know, uh, Super Chats are back. We got those back last month. Uh, so this is from Sarah Falvey. Do we only see these gates within the Greek and Roman cultures? Do we see similar gates with Native American, Asian, and or Celtic cultures? That's a very good question. Um, I have studied a lot of the Native American cultures, and for them, death is more of a spiritual thing as opposed to going into the earth. Now, with the Asian cultures, I'm not aware of a going into the earth, but um, the, the ancient Zoroastrian religion of Persia talked about a lake of fire, as did the Egyptians, and it appears to have been underneath the earth. Now, let's think about this for a minute. In Iran, um, certainly parts of Egypt, and definitely in, in uh, the Mediterranean, underneath the earth, a lake of fire, these are all volcanically active areas. So for them, these lakes of fire could be lava, could be magma. Well, magma is, is lava that hasn't come through the surface yet. So, so that's where this lake of fire in the underworld comes from. But in other cultures, I'm not aware that all of them are necessarily subterranean the way it is with the Greco-Roman. That's a very good question. Awesome. And uh, this is kind of an interesting one here from uh, Sarah Youssef. Uh, given the high rates of deaths at those sites, are there high levels of paranormal activity? Yes. Um which is what makes it so fascinating. And that's now bringing me across the other side of the Aegean to the Oracle of Delphi. Apollo was the god of prophecy. And, you know, Apollo, he was like the, the blonde surfer dude, you know, he had the big <laughs> muscles. And around, you know, he rode his chariot through the sky and brought up the sun. And, um, but he was also um, the god of, of prophecy. And the Oracle of Delphi was the Oracle of Apollo, and it, it was staffed mainly by women, <clears throat> excuse me, the priestess. And they would sit on this tripod above geothermal vents, and they would start to channel, if you will, the god Apollo and give prophecies. And the, the Greek and Roman uh, scholars who visited these sites, and you got to realize Delphi was an important spiritual epicenter and, and psychic site, if you would, <clears throat> for 17 centuries. So for 1,700 years, people would go to the Oracle of Delphi for advice. 
and they talk about how the air became very sweet. Well, Delphi sits above a, a volcanic vent, and the gas ethylene has a very sweet odor, and ethylene can also induce a hallucinogenic type state. So according to legend, that the priestesses, they would sit on this tripod and, and inhale this supposedly ethylene and start giving prophecies. The thing is, though, a lot of these prophecies were quite accurate. So from that standpoint, there was a lot of paranormal activity going on. If I can share two stories about Delphi, would that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. Around about almost 500 um, B.C., there was this king of, of what is now Turkey, okay, which would, which would include Heropolis, okay, and his name was Croesus. And Croesus was very concerned about the rapidly expanding Persian Empire on its eastern frontier. And the Persians were conquering massive amounts of, of territory. And so he went to the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle said to him, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a mighty empire. Well, Croesus took that to mean that he needed to launch an attack against the Persians. So he got his allies, even got the Egyptians involved. He got a, like a whole coalition army, and they went at the Persians. Well, the Persians annihilated the army, wiped it off the face of the earth, um, took Croesus prisoner. I think they executed him. There's varying stories about that, and occupied all of what is now Turkey. So the prophecy came true. Croesus attacked the Persians and destroyed a mighty empire, his own. And so that's why, you know, as, as a psychic medium, I always tell people, when you get messages or when we receive messages of a prophetic nature, you got to be very careful about jumping to conclusions as to what they mean. Mm -hmm. But then, barely a century later, the Persians had continued their um, forays against the Aegean world, and they wanted Greece really badly. And so um, a huge Persian army crossed uh, the Dardanelles, and they were closing in on the city of Athens, and they really wanted Athens because the Athenians were, were the troublemakers with the Persians. They were stirring everything up. And the Greek city-states, they put together an army, and we've all heard about the 300 at the Battle of Thermopylae. There was a movie a couple of years back, which is really kind of cheesy. But anyway, um, <laughs> well, it's one of my favorites. No. They got a little too ridiculous. They should have stuck mm -hmm. with with more of the fat, like the big crab monster. Where did that come from? All right. So, Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray Harryhausen is my hero. So oh, I, I love Ray. Yes. But the Athenians went to the Oracle of Apollo and at Delphi, and the message was, you will defeat the Persians. No, Athens will be saved, and you will defeat the Persians from behind wooden walls. Well, the Athenians immediately evacuated the entire city of Athens. The Persians broke through um, the 300 and they burned Athens to the ground. But the Athenian population had been moved to the island of Salamis. Now, the, the Persians had a massive fleet, and they assembled it, and they were closing in. But the Greeks had a really good fleet, nowhere near as big as the Persians. But the Greek admiral laid a trap, and he drew them into a narrow channel. And all of a sudden, the big clunky Persian ships couldn't maneuver, and they all started running into each other and running aground. And then the Greeks, from a safe distance, start picking them off with uh, catapults, with flaming uh, projectiles, and they burned the Persian fleet um, and, and, and completely destroyed it. Meanwhile, on the mainland of Greece, uh, the United Greek armies under Spartan command at the Battle of Marathon decisively defeated the, the uh, Persians. But the prophecy came true. Athens would be saved and the Persians would be defeated from behind wooden walls, which the Athenians correctly interpreted as ships. Mm -hmm. Ships are made of wood. <laughs> and that's why they got everybody out of Athens, got them on the island of Salamis, and knew that their wooden walls, their their navy, was going to be used 
um, well, well, was their salvation. So, so it's really interesting when you start looking at these ancient prophecies. And this isn't like in the Iliad or the Odyssey. This is history. This is what was being right. written down, and and that's what happened. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of paranormal activity in the ancient world. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, we got deep into some uh, some fascinating history there, and um, you know one of the questions that came from Betty Lange was if you had been to some of these sites, and I didn't scroll up far enough to get her question to to put it on the screen. But, <laughs> oh yeah, um, well um, I've yet to go to to Heropolis. I've uh, been to a number of sites in Italy, uh, certainly France, England, Central America, South America, um, Asia, and and in Southeast Asia. And that's that's why you know I'm, I'm known as the psychic explorer. Uh, it's right. funny because both my brands, psychic lawyer, psychic explorer, I was dubbed those by media. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I first like started um, my book, Never Letting Go, was uh, just come out, and I was somewhere and I was on some show, and the guy introduced me. He's the psychic lawyer, and I was like, you know, because I'm an attorney and a psychic medium, and it stuck. And then I was somewhere else, and I was describing. Um, some supernatural phenomenon that I'd studied in South America and they start calling me the psychic explorer. So, so these terms have, have stuck, but that's what I've been doing my whole life is I love to study these things and then go see them and then see what I feel. Um, you know, the United States is loaded with great sites. I mean, certainly paranormal investigations and haunted locations, but if you go to places like Sedona or Grand Mesa um, and uh, the Honanaki ruins outside of Sedona to see some of the ancient uh, Native American dwellings. It, it's really amazing when you see the Native American language carved into the rock face, and we don't know how to interpret this yet. Uh, I mean, I was with a, a guide, and he was like, well, they don't know if it's a language. I go, of course it's a language. I said, <laughs> look at it, Okay. And, you know, it had a number of um, what they call petroglyphs, which are representations. I mean, you know, it's like hieroglyphs like I have on on uh, that stele back there. You know, the Native Americans were, were no less no less clever. And uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second. Oh, go right ahead. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny because no, we, we, we love hearing that. your story. So go ahead. What's that, Victoria? Well, we were just talking about all those places right before um, Mark joined we us. We were, yeah. We were talking about <laughs> Sedona and, yeah, a, a lot of the southwest uh, United the States. So, Well, all right. I've, I've, <laughs> I've been to Peru. I've been to Central America. I've been to um, the Honanaki ruins all over mm -hmm. the southwest. And I've also been up in Canada and and in, in uh, the Cape Cod region where the pilgrims landed. And there's something that every Native American nation did from Canada to Argentina, the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash planted together as seeds. They help each other grow. They um, perpetuate each other and they became the staple foods in, in Native American um, civilizations throughout the entire New World. Now, how is it that they all knew to do this? It would indicate that there must have been a lot of trade, a lot of travel, and a lot of interfacing between these different cultures, because somebody figured this out. And, you know, to this day, it's like, you know, the shade of, of the... Uh, the squash leaves protect the, the, the beans and then the corn grows and then the beans can grow there and they don't choke each other out. And let me tell you, the, the Europeans, uh, the English, were going to starve until the Native Americans, uh, much to their demise, taught them how to do this. So I found that very, very interesting how the corns, beans, and squash, you put them all in the same hole, plant them, you're going to have a, uh, three different crops that are not only going to keep you alive, but going to give you a surplus. And, and, you know, that's the whole basis of a civilization is when you stop hunting, gathering and start cultivating. So anyway, that that's an observation that, that I made. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll get around to writing something and doing more research on it. But I always found that very, very fascinating. 
You know, when we study archaeology, we all want to get the tomb of Tutankhamun. You know, we want the gold, we want the treasure, <laughs> the old Indiana Jones stuff. But you got to get to how did these people get to that level? And you've got to have an infrastructure. You've got to have cultivation. You've got to have food on a regular. I thought it was aliens. <laughs> well, that too. You know, that's um, we. My daughter and I moved to this house right before the pandemic, like the day before. Um, and so, container gardening was something everyone was doing, and they're doing exactly what you were talking about, mixing the three types of uh, plants together in one container. And that's something we've always done. You know, we've always had plants out there and you always know you your tomatoes and your marigolds grow together because the marigolds keep the bugs away and the tomatoes grow real big. So, I mean, it's coming back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, that's it. <laughs> so, uh, we had a we had a question in here a, a little bit of a, a different topic but um, this is from Sarah uh, Falvey. Does your psychic abilities help your legal career or has it created barriers for you? It's a little bit of a personal question here. Yes. Um, first off, I'm no longer practicing law, but I do appear on many shows as a legal analyst uh, in high profile cases. I become the media's go to guy when the legal system and the paranormal collide, which actually happens quite a bit more than you might think, especially when you hear people like I'm possessed by devils. And that's why I did this, which is actually an outgrowth of the insanity defense. But when I was practicing law full time, um, absolutely. My, my abilities were part of my skill set. It came in particularly um, handy during jury selection. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Job selections, too, because we used to analyze handwriting. You know, they would pass it to me. Oh, no, he's got the serial killer D. We can't hire well, him. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Picking up on things on, on mm -hmm. people. And, uh, like, there's this one trial that I was doing. And... Um, it, it was a, a battery charge, and, and my client, he was a big bruiser, and he got in a fight with another big bruiser. It was barroom brawl, you know, mutual combat, but it was still a crime of violence. And I was defending him, and so the prosecutor, we're at jury selection, which is before you start taking evidence. And it's interesting because uh, the, the officer that is charged with uh, the murder of George Floyd, uh, his jury selection started today, so this is kind of a right. time topic, I guess. And so we got the prospective jurors and I kept zeroing in on this one woman and I kept feeling it's clamping around my throat. I couldn't breathe. And I kept feeling a female energy, a female spirit around her. So I knew that there was um, somebody connected with her, had some type of obstruction with her breathing prior to passing. And so when I stand up to do, to do my section of the jury selection, which is known as voir dire, or where I went to law school in Georgia, Vore Dyer, um, <laughs> I, I asked I asked the jury, you know, and this is very standard in a in in a crime of violence. Have you or has anyone in your family ever been a victim of a violent crime? Lo and behold, the woman that that I kept getting drawn to raises her hand, and she begins to tremble. And I'll never forget this. The tears just start streaming out of her eyes. And oh, she, wow. She said, a year ago, my sister was in a foreign country when an escaped mental patient strangled her, dismembered oh. her body, and threw her in the garbage like oh she was trash. And I'm standing there. You know, I'm all of like 26 years old. You know, you know, wow. you know uh, this is like, you know, I just gone and work for this defense firm, and everyone's looking at me like, do something. And I can hear my client like, dude, what are you doing? And then I'm starting to see her sister's spirit come in. And then I understand why I'm feeling the clamping in my throat. Literally, I had a foot in both worlds. Mm. And if you wow. want to find out what happens, you have to get my book, Never Letting Go. Okay. So my list too. Hey, let me ask you a question real quick. Um, my degree is in broadcasting, and right before I graduated, they said, you know, one thing you might want to look into is um, entertainment law. Is paranormal law going? Do you think that's going to be something we can work our way into? Well, there certainly is, um, and, and uh, both of you would be interested in this. There is ghost hunter liability, and there are certain oh. insurance companies who are issuing policies for ghost hunters when you're doing a paranormal investigation. Now, immediately you think, well, does that cover me if I get possessed by devils? Well, let's be a little <laughs> bit more practical <clears throat> with this. 
Um, I don't think insurance policies cover acts of God <laughs> or demons, but um, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. But okay, you're running around in an abandoned house at night, and somebody falls down the stairs and breaks a leg. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It, doesn't it make sense for you to get a liability policy before you do this? Well, normally you sign a disclaimer or a waiver. Well, there have been um, cases where I've been consulted, you know, on where I had to comment where people claim that the ghost hunters actually agitated the spirits that are said to be lurking in their house and made things worse. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how you would possibly prove that in a court of law, but it certainly makes for a good segment on a news program. But um, I don't know if there's going to be so much. Uh, paranormal law, I think it's basically going to be broadening the parameters of insurance and liability coverage is is what it would appear to be. Okay. Interesting. So, Mark, we got about 15 minutes left in the show. I know there was one other topic that uh, you wanted to go ahead and talk about, and that was the uh, the Loch Ness monster. And, you know, we all know about Nessie, but you told us before the show that there's some new information emerging about our uh, our famous Loch Ness monster. So let's uh, let's take a look at good old Nessie here. There she is. So what yeah, can you tell us about what's yeah, going on that, with Nessie? Yeah, well, I've, I've actually spent time at Loch Ness. And um, if you ever get to, if you ever go to Scotland, you got to go to Loch Ness. And, you know, every time you hear a splash in the water, you look like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? um, that photo that you brought up, Mike, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's the 1934 photo, and it's called the surgeon's photo because Dr. Robert Wilson, who was a surgeon, took it. Well, that hit the British press big time, probably even bigger than Megan and Harry's interview. But- <laughs> <laughs> that's because Oprah wasn't there. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> It depends on who, <laughs> which side you're on. Which monster are we talking about? Anyway, um, but uh, as it turned out, uh, Dr. Wilson um, admitted that that was a hoax. It was a rubber head that he stuck on a toy submarine that he bought at Woolworths. And they took a photo of it. And people have analyzed it. They could see that, you know, the ripples in the water are not consistent yeah. with, with that. And so the thought became that it, that the Loch Ness Monster could possibly be a plesiosaur, which is a, a dinosaur that looks something <clears throat> like uh, the mock-up. The thing, though, about Loch Ness is that reports of, of Nessie, of sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, go back as far as 565 A.D. So we're talking 1,500 years ago. And it's an interesting story of an Irish missionary who became known as St. Columba. And he was at, uh, at Loch Ness, and supposedly this, this monster, this monstrous creature, bit somebody that was swimming, and St. Columba jumped in the water and told him to get back, and it did. Well, so these sightings have gone on and on for centuries. And, you know, once again, people think that it's a plesiosaur, a dinosaur that got trapped there. But what recently, Konsberg Maritime, and it's a, um, a marine institute from Norway, they decided to look for Nessie by using an underwater drone. And this was really cool because they went really deep and they found something absolutely astonishing. Now, can the drone see because it's so dense and dark down there, isn't it? Well, it was using infrared, ah. and they found at the bottom of Loch Ness a giant wooden mock-up of the Loch Ness monster that was used in a 1969 Sherlock Holmes movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it was made by none other than Wally Vivers, who is a legend in special effects movies. In fact, he worked on... Uh, 2001 a space odyssey he did these effects for that so they didn't find um a dinosaur but they certainly found a a wooden mock-up of it and uh which was really fascinating but um you got to realize loch ness is a pretty big lake it's 22 miles long it's a mile and a half wide and 800 feet deep now that's a lot of water Mm -hmm. so logically the answer to the mystery lies in the water. And a retired um, chemist 
Professor Henry Bauer from Virginia Polytechnic. He's now 89. He believes, based on other photographs that have been taken, that the Loch Ness Monster very well could be a form of a sea turtle, large turtles that may have been trapped at Loch Ness after the last ice age when the ice caps receded. But more recently, uh, Nick uh, Jamil, and he's from the University of Otago in New Zealand, he decided to test the water itself. And so uh, Professor Jamel and his team of New Zealand marine biologists began analyzing the water and they found over 3,000 different species DNA. Now what they didn't find were, were sharks. They didn't find sturgeon DNA but what really rocked their world, they found massive, and, and they were astonished, massive amounts of eel DNA. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So now... Yeah, possibly giant eagle, eels, maybe? Very possibly giant eels. And they said, you don't have to be a marine biologist. They say every 10-year-old boy's caught eels at Loch Ness. Okay. And, but here's another... another uh, curved curveball to throw in here 20 percent of the dna samples they've found is unexplainable they don't know what it is so so it, it could be a giant eel generally though the type of eels that live in in the lakes in scotland um get about four to five feet long but if it's a giant eel it could be much deeper. And he said, Professor Jemini said, Jamil, excuse me, Professor Jamil said, it appears that they're looking at something much, much larger. Now, we're back to the plesiosaur. They said, well, there's no dinosaur DNA. Well, how do you know? Have we ever found dinosaur DNA? Of course not. In a plesiosaur. <laughs> no, we would have Jurassic Park right now if we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, the little kidney's like, yeah, you know, and then it's like you see the movie. I love where Jeff Goldberg is like in the th uh, second or third when he goes, then there's the screaming and the running. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are there any underwater caves or anything they could like slip off in? Like, you know, well, a submarine? <laughs> well, um, it, it, that's possible, but Loch Ness appears, it's freshwater, so it's it's separate from, from the ocean. Okay. But that does mean that there's still not uh, some type of subterranean uh, connections there. Um, another theory, the psychologists have said that uh, the massive sightings of Loch Ness could be due to what's known as a phenomenon called expectant attention. And that's when you really want to see something so bad and you expect to see it that you begin to misinterpret visual clues. And you know, I have to admit, when I was at Loch Ness, Every time the water would splash, it's like, you know, I, I just, you know, I really wanted to see something, but unfortunately we didn't. <laughs> um, on the other hand, if 20% of the DNA is unexplained and, and I'm not saying that it's a plesiosaur, but uh, archeologists have unearthed skeletons or rather the fossilized remains of them of plesiosaurs in Scotland. So, you know, 65 million plus years ago, plesiosaurs were in the area, but whether or not Nessie is a plesiosaur collection thereof, it remains to be seen. My money is on, on the eels, and it makes sense. Um, eels, slippery, slimy, they're going to come up for a minute. They have that whole sea serpenty look. Um, I think that that's probably the most logical answer. But then again, and, and Mike and Victoria, you know this as well as I do, whenever investigating the unusual and the so-called unexplainable, the lack of evidence does not mean the absence of evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, this yep. is true. And we continuously find um, you know, additional uh, you know, in new life forms in our deep parts of the ocean. There's plenty that we have yet to discover down there. And, you know, as we keep sending you know, probes down the little, you know, robotic drones and, and what have you, they keep finding all kinds of fascinating life forms, especially like around our thermal venting and what have you. So 
you know, I always leave that possibility open that, you know, there could be things out there that we we still don't have an answer for because we're we haven't found them yet. Well, recently, mm-hmm. in fact, um, this January, January 2021, there was another sighting of Loch, Loch Ness monster, Nessie, and it's from a surveillance camera, which is on uh, the castle. Was the, or, or, um, sorry, I forget the name of the castle. But they, they show something very large that comes up surfaces and then kind of sinks back down. And there's a report of some people that were in a boat and their sonar, you know, when you, when you go uh, deep sea fishing or I guess deep lake fishing, um, they picked up an object uh, directly below their boat um, in about, you know, like 50 plus feet of water that appeared to be 33 feet long. So something's there. Wow. What would they do if it rose up underneath them? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've been out there. You know, pretty big and nasty things have surfaced nearby. Mm-hmm. And what you do is not irritate it. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't want something coming out of the water or like maybe, I don't know, eating you or maybe at least yeah. taking off an arm. You don't want that. Uh, no, no. Not a good day. And, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, uh, you know, my dad taught me, my dad was a Navy SEAL, and he taught me that sharks are not monsters. He said they belong there, okay? Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. and you have to respect them. And let me tell you, I, I've learned, you know, growing up on the ocean and, and diving and, and uh, coming into contact. I mean, uh, some other, next time I'm on the show, I'll tell you about my octopus encounter. But oh, um, there we go. Yeah, it was a big one. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so Loch Ness definitely is going to continue to captivate our imagination. Uh, it may be an eel, but there's still that 20% of unexplainable DNA. And when I was at Loch Ness, I remember talking to some of the locals, and I love the Scots. They're just great people. And I said, don't you wish they'd find it? And this one guy, and he was, you know, we were all drinking. He was, we were drinking Scots whiskey, and he goes, no. He goes, it'd be bad for business. <laughs> Right, because once they have an answer, nobody's going to come up there anymore. So yeah, yeah you know, yeah, exactly. Why go? I mean, other than the fact that it's breathtakingly beautiful, um, the Scottish Highlands are, are just amazing. Yeah. Uh, but the Scots were like, "No, we like the mystery. We want there to be a monster." And I was like, "A what? A monster?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Mark, we are getting down to the uh, the end of the show here. Um, we have your. Uh, your website there underneath on the ticker evidenceofeternity.com. So everybody, please go ahead, check that out. There was a, uh, a nice comment in here for you from Tammy Pennington. Mark is amazing. Aww. I've been in two group readings with him and he is always spot on with what is going on with me. So thank you, Tammy. Well, thank you, Tammy. And you know, everybody, I'm going to um, invite everyone to tune in to my show. I co-host the show with Dr. Pat Basili the psychic in the dock this Thursday. And I have a very special guest, the one, the only Mike Ricksecker. Yeah. Mike. Oh, oh, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be Mike. yeah. Um, and that uh, if you go to my website, evidence of and you go to the calendar of events, it'll show you how you can um, uh, you know, tune into the show. And Mike's going to be talking about his groundbreaking cutting edge book, a walk in the shadows. He's going to talk about his uh, life and work as a paranormal investigator. There it is. There it is. <laughs> and if you want to share your paranormal experience or get Mike's take on your encounter with the shadow people, we're, we're welcoming callers. So I'm really looking forward to having Mike Ricksecker as my guest on the psychic in the dock this Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, you know, always, always great to talk to you, Mark, uh, here and, you know, on, on your podcasts and shows as well. So um, anything else you want to share? You have a, a new book that's going to be coming out. We have a, an expected date for that. Uh, my publisher told me the anticipated release date is Tuesday, October 5th of this year. And uh, I'm very excited. We'll be releasing more details uh, about that. And um, I'm going much deeper into explaining the scientific basis for spirit communication, near-death experiences, deathbed visions, and visitations. Um, because uh, my, my research has indicated that there is a common denominator between all of them. Because a mystery is simply a question for which we do not yet have the answer. 
but we will, and I believe I do. Oh, that sounds Fantastic. amazing. Sounds exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll definitely have to grab that in October. So we'll have you back on the show so you can promote it. Oh. Yeah, that would be great. I look forward to it. Well, thank you. And everybody, uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, you know, it's, it's always fun uh, for me to work with Mike and Victoria. You know, it feels like we're just sitting around a table virtually, I guess. Uh, yeah, pretty much. We are. <laughs> virtual, you know, a virtual yeah. Scottish whiskey um, talking about nothing and uh, <laughs> hell. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the, um, but the thing is, um, I really appreciate you having me on and giving me a forum to discuss some of my uh, adventures. Uh, and I, I enjoy being able to share them. Many blessings. Absolutely, my friend. Always a pleasure having you on. Oh, it's fun to talk to you, Mark. 